Most of us feel like we know on a definitional level. And that's one that somehow, somewhere along the way, it feels like most of us learn in Bible class. And if I were to ask you tonight, what is holiness? I imagine the first response I'd get back from most all of you is that, well, to be holy means to be uh, set apart. It means to be sanctified. It means to be separate. And that's not wrong. There's a reason we know that definition because, at least to a certain extent, it's accurate. But if we think of holiness solely in terms of separation, it can lead to misunderstandings about what this word really is about. I think over the years, more often than not, we've defined holiness in a negative sense. And that is that we thought of someone as holy in terms of what they don't do. I, I think it's safe to say that probably most of us have heard it taught that way or maybe we've thought about it that way. Holiness was conceived as a long list of don'ts. We don't do this and we don't do that. And so uh, for men sometimes it was thought of as things like not wearing shorts or not having long hair or not wearing jewelry to the point of not even wearing a wedding ring in some cases, not just because you've lost it for months and you still can't find it, uh, but because you actually thought it was unholy to wear one. Uh, for women, sometimes it's been thought of as not wearing makeup or not cutting your hair. And it extends even to activities. At a certain point, uh, if you exhibit holiness, you're not going to go to the movies. And then a little bit later on, it's watching television. Uh, my grandfather, some of you may be able to relate to this, my grandfather's told me that when he was a boy, his grandparents didn't have dominoes in their home because of the potential of their association with gambling. They thought that that was something that was unholy to have around, even if they weren't going to be gambling with them. You could probably think of other examples like that, and we could continue on in this vein. But I think we get the idea. Not only is this not a comprehensive understanding of what holiness is, but it can lead, unfortunately, to the idea that when we're talking about being separate, we need to completely separate ourselves from the world. We can think of holiness in terms of withdrawal because we don't want to be uh, contaminated by those people out there, and so it can lead almost to, to monasticism. We cut ourselves off from everyone else. We have to live lives uh, as close to in isolation as we possibly can get. We withdraw for our own protection, and then holiness just gets reduced to this dull list of commands, things that we don't need to do. But what I want to suggest is, not only is that a misunderstanding of holiness, holiness doesn't mean withdrawal. And it's much more radical, in fact, than a long list of don'ts. To understand holiness in terms of our own character, because we're talking about characteristics we need to cultivate as Christians, first we need to have some understanding of what we mean when we talk about God's holiness. 
Now, if we look at the Old Testament, I think it's fair to say that God's holiness is his defining characteristic. We find that attribute uh, appearing more than any other and overshadowing any other attribute of God in terms of the way he presents himself in the Old Testament. And the basic idea here of the word, its root, uh, does come from this concept of separateness. But when we're talking about God's nature, we don't mean separateness in terms of distance. This is separateness primarily in the terms of uniqueness. Theologians have come to talk about this in terms of God being wholly other. And that's not H-O-L-Y, that's W-H-O-L-L-Y. That is completely, totally. God as wholly other. So that he is completely unlike anyone or anything else. No one is like him. No thing is like him. God is unique. But God's not only holy in terms of his nature, he is also holy secondarily in terms of his attributes. He's free from any blemish of any kind, and we can think of things like his justice and his love and his righteousness and his mercy here. And I think that this comes through particularly clearly in Isaiah chapter 6, in Isaiah's account of his call to prophetic office here. This is a passage that most of us might remember. He says in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, Isaiah realized his imperfection, his weakness, his unholiness when he compared himself to the glory of a perfectly holy God. And in fact, I think it's interesting to note that in terms of descriptions of God, this is the only one that we ever see repeated in a threefold fashion, holy, holy, holy. Uh, We find that again in Revelation, incidentally. And so we're fond of saying God is love. That's what John tells us. We think of that as a one-to-one equivalence, God is love. Well, that's true, but God is also holy. And in fact, that's repeated three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. But it's just here that we need to remember that danger we've talked about of thinking of holiness as aloofness, as physical separation. That's not the way God deals with his people. And in fact, to the contrary, God actually exhibits his holiness in the midst of his unholy people. We see that really clearly in the Old Testament when he pitches his tent right there in the midst of the camp of Israel. 
Some of you who have uh, been through our Sunday morning class where we've talked about the nature of God and his desire for relationship with people will remember this. Precautions have to be taken because God is holy. So we have the the layout of the camp where uh, not everyone has access to the tabernacle where God manifests his presence. Those environs are limited. And then outside that, we have the Levites, that tribe that's devoted to God's service. And then outside that, we have the rest of Israel. And then we have those who are unclean, unholy, outside the camp. So there's precautions that have to be taken there. And, of course, we remember that not everyone can go into the tabernacle. And, in fact, even if you can go into the tabernacle, not just anyone can go into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest can go there, and he can only go there once a year. But this isn't arbitrary. This isn't because God just wants it to be this way. This is for protection, and it's because of his unique nature, because he's different, because he's holy. It's not because God doesn't want to be near his people. In fact, it's just the opposite. God's taking every precaution here so that he can live with his people to the best possibility. So we put all this together, and what we see is that holiness is not so much about separation as it is distinctiveness. Holiness is primarily about distinctiveness. We see that with God's nature, the fact that he's wholly other. And that also gives us some insight into understanding what it is that he expects from us. As the passage we read from 1 Peter a few moments ago stated, and this is quoting from the Old Testament, this is repeatedly in the scripture. Be holy, for I am holy. Well, what does that mean? What does God expect from us when he calls us to holiness? We need to understand, first of all, that holiness is not something that is native in God's people. It's not something that's inherent in us. We're only holy because God has called us holy. We derive our holiness from God's holiness. His holiness is part of his nature, as we pointed out. We're only holy because he set us apart. So his people are positionally holy, if we can use that word. We can think of it that way. Think about Israel. Israel was set apart, sanctified, called to be God's holy people, not because of anything special about them, You know, as he even puts it, it's not because you were more numerous than any other people. It's not because you were mighty. There's nothing great about Israel. It's simply because of God's free choice. God chose them to be his people. Their holiness, then, is traced solely to God. And that very same thing is true of us as Christians. We're holy because we're God's people in Christ. In Christ, God has called us to be holy. He set us apart. And I think this is really striking when we read 1 Corinthians. Now, this touches on some things that we discussed in our Sunday morning class, for those of you who were in there this morning. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at how Paul addresses the church in Corinth in verse 2, his salutation, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, now that's the same word in the Greek or the same root here. So in other words, to those who are made holy, you could translate it that way, to those who are made holy in Christ Jesus, called to be saints 
together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And of course, saints means holy ones. So in other words, this he's writing here to those who are made holy in Christ Jesus, called to be holy ones. But then you read this letter, and man, if there was ever a church that was involved in some unholy activities, it's the church in Corinth. There were all sorts of problems in that congregation. So how can Paul possibly refer to them as people who are made holy, called to be holy ones? Well, there's no contradiction here. See, the point is, they're not holy in themselves. They've been called to be that in Christ. God has set them apart. God has made them holy. They're only holy in relation to God, not in relation to themselves, not because of anything that that they've done. But with all that said, we think about how God is holy in his nature And then secondarily, God's holy in terms of his attributes. The same thing is true of us. We are holy because God has set us apart as his holy people. But secondarily, God sets us apart so we might cultivate holiness, holy characteristics in our lives. God's action has in view a real, actual life change. And Sometimes this is called sanctification. That's a word we've heard. And the idea is that we're continuing to grow more holy in our lifestyle. And we're empowered by God. He gives us his spirit to to help us in that. And we cooperate with God in growing more holy in our lives. Now, that doesn't mean we earn his acceptance. But it does mean if we're his people... If we've been adopted into his family, well, uh, you think about in your own family, you all look a little bit alike, don't you? (laughs) There should be a family resemblance. We should start to look something like God. We should start to exhibit some of these same characteristics that are part of his holy nature. And so we think about the Old Testament. That personal holiness was expressed through a number of very specific laws. In fact, sometimes those laws are called the holiness code. If you read books or commentaries, sometimes people refer to it that way. God's people were instructed in the minutia of holiness. And remember, holiness is primarily about being distinctive. So this is about marking Israel, God's people, out as distinct from the nations. And of course, we could think about all the specifics of their food laws and their cleanliness laws, but you just think more generally, the very first of the Ten Commandments is about exclusively worshiping God. You'll have no other gods before me. Well, that was distinct. In ancient pagan religions, they didn't care about that. You could worship as many gods as you pleased. One day a week, the Sabbath was set apart as holy to God. In the tithe law, a tenth of your crop or of your flocks was to be set apart to God as holy. We could continue on like this in the Old Testament. But in the same way, in the New Testament, Christians are called to be distinctive. And in fact, we don't have those specific laws, but we're called to live lives that are holy and devoted to God. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. 
Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or your spiritual worship. We're offering up the best part of ourselves to him, in other words. Now, we recognize that the world is going to try to tear us away from that. And so he says in the next verse, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. We face the temptation to be conformed to this age, but God calls us to be holy, to be distinctive, to be dedicated to him. But we have to remember, again, I'm going to reiterate this. This distinctiveness does not mean separation. And in just the same way that we saw a holy God living with his unholy people, we see that in Jesus. Jesus was holy, wasn't he? I know we'd all agree with that. And yet, do we see Jesus living a life of separation? No. Jesus was right there, shoulder to shoulder with the sinners, eating with the tax collectors, reaching out and touching those unclean lepers. He lived that holy life in the midst of unholy people. We don't have a detailed holiness code the same way that they did in the Old Testament. But we put some of this together. We're to live lives that are devoted to God. Holiness is perhaps God's most fundamental attribute. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Jesus is the fullest and the final revelation of God. We go back to that question we asked at the beginning, what is holiness? And we'd all, off the top of our head, define that as wants to be set apart. You put this together. Holiness is to live like Jesus lived. With all that that entails. To follow his distinctive teachings. To live lives that are dedicated to his way. Now obviously, spelling out all the details of that is not something that we could even begin to hope to cover in this lesson. My, my dad's told me more than once, my great-granddad frequently used to say in his lessons something to the effect of uh, becoming a Christian is easy. I can tell you in less than a minute what you need to do to become a Christian. But to tell you how to live a Christian life would take the rest of my life. And that really gets us to the idea of what it means to be holy, to cultivate holiness. Well, it's to live like Jesus did, and, and we can't spell that out in detail in one lesson. But, but take a cue from Peter. Our scripture reading was from Peter, and Peter reminds us that God says, be holy as I am holy, and he expounds on that throughout the first part of this letter. In chapter 2, he reminds us, he applies some of this same language that was applied to Israel to the church. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter reminds us that we've been made holy by becoming God's people, God has set us apart. That's that positional holiness that we talked about. And then he expounds on that, and he said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So see, this is his thesis statement. You're a people who've been marked out as holy, and so you need to live in a particular way, a distinct way, remember distinctiveness, so that others can see that. And then he goes on and he spells that out in several different societal relationships in the rest of chapter 2 and into chapter 3. But, but I hope you noticed here when he says they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That should set off some synapses firing there. We should think that sounds like something. Sounds like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, seeing good works and glorify God. Matthew chapter 5, this is a passage that's familiar to uh, all of us, I'm sure, but when we think about what it means to live holy lives, I think this is a, a good thumbnail sketch. Matthew 5, verse 13, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. We normally think of this as just two images, salt and light, but there's actually a, a triad here. There's three things, salt, light, and your deeds or your works. We must not lose our saltiness. That is, we must be distinctive. We must be a genuinely holy community. God's people must not lose their identity and become just like the rest of the world. But the danger in that, as we've seen, is isolation. It's withdrawal. And so Jesus uses at the same time this image of light. And light reminds us that we must be visible. That is, we're distinctive, but that's not something that we do in secret. Everyone knows that. We want people to see that, and we want to invite them to live these same sorts of holy lives that we're living. And finally, this is lived out in our actions. We're different from the world but we illuminate the world. And we do that through our works which are obedient to God, which glorify God. The theologian Stanley Hauerwas has put it this way, and I think this is one of the most profound statements he's made if you think about it. The first task of the church is to be the church. It sounds like there's not very much there, but that's a mouthful if you really stop and consider it. The church needs to be the church. We're not the world. We're holy. We're different from the world. And we ought to emphasize that distinctiveness and not become like the rest of the world and remind the world that they are the world and we are the church. But we're doing that for the purpose of trying to call people in to get them to see this light shining here as Peter puts it so that they may glorify God on the day of visitation just as Israel was a light to the nations we are to be a light to the world calling others to become part of God's holy nation 
So the question is, can others see that you're living that distinctive life? Can others see Jesus living in us? Or make it personal, ask yourself, can people see Jesus living in me? And if not, and you didn't make changes tonight in a public way, it's his invitation while we stand and while we sing.